Section 3 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Yeaves. Section 3. She took her leave somewhat piqued, for she was perscapacious, although foolish, and she realized that the gentleman of Julie, in that outbreak of rebellion, had told her a home truth. But she was not evil-minded, and an hour later she had forgotten her spleen. Indeed, she felt a little depressed, and at times was quite ready to say to herself, "'Perhaps Julie is right.' Julie, on her part, felt that all her courage failed her as soon as she was left alone, and her pride melted away in tears." She was strong only as a result of nervous reactions, and perhaps of a more eager craving for love than she confessed to herself. Naturally, she was timid, even shrinking. She knew the Baroness's kind heart too well to fear a real rupture with her. But she, too, said to herself, "'Perhaps Emily is right. I seek the impossible, the surroundings of rank and fortune, in conjunction with love. Whoever obtains that? No one in my position.' For lack of the best, I may be going to fall into the worst, which is solitude and sadness. She took her parasol, one of those flat white parasols which produced a prettier effect among the shrubbery than our modern mushrooms, and placed the heels of her little slippers softly on the turf. Her skirt turned gracefully back over the straight petticoat. She strolled pensively along under the lilac bushes in her garden, inhaling the air of spring in silent misery, starting at the voice of the nightingale, thinking of nobody, yet carried outside of herself by a boundless aspiration. She went from lilac to lilac until she drew near the pavilion, where, an hour earlier, Julian Thierry, the painter's son, the rich man's nephew, the solicitor's cousin, was at work. The garden was large for a garden in Paris, and was beautiful, both as to its arrangement and its contents. Every day Madame de Strel walked around it two or three times, casting a melancholy or loving glance at each of the flower-beds with which the turf was studded. When she came in sight of the windows of the Louis Thirteenth pavilion, she did not turn away, nor worry about being seen, for the pavilion had been long unoccupied. Julian and his mother had been settled there only a month. Madame de Strel had complained to Marcel Thierry because the Marquis, her father-in-law, being unwilling to sacrifice the trifling revenue from so worthless a piece of property, had let it to strange tenants. Marcel had reassured her by informing her that the new tenant was the venerable and most respectable widow of his uncle, the artist. He had not mentioned Julien. It may be that the countess did not know that the painter had left a son. At all events, it had not occurred to her to make inquiries about him. She had never seen him at the windows, in the first place because she was very near-sighted, and the young women in those days did not wear glasses, and secondly because Julien, being informed of the proximity of a person of rigid morals, had taken great pains not to show himself. Sometimes Madame de Strel had seen at the first-floor window a pale, refined face, surmounted by a white cap, which saluted her with deferential reserve. She had returned the sweet-faced widow's salutation pleasantly, even with respect, but they had not as yet exchanged a word. On this day Julie, seeing that the ground-floor window was partly open, began to ask herself, for the first time, why she had not entered into neighborly relations with Madame Thierry. 
she examined the wall of the little building and noticed that the door at the end of the garden was locked on the outside as when the house was unoccupied madame thierry could see nothing but the shrubbery which concealed the countess's mansion in a part of the principal lawn she had no right even to sit in the sunshine along the wall of her house under those flowering shrubs which actually entered her rooms and which she had no right to prune moreover she was forbidden by the terms of her lease to walk on the gravelled walk that ran inside the street wall in a word the door was condemned and the tenant had made no vexatious demands on that subject it is true that the countess had anticipated such a demand with a determination to comply with it but she had not noticed the feeling of timidity or pride which prevented madame thierry from making it she thought of it on that day of self-condemnation and reproached herself for not forestalling the poor widow's presumed desire if it had been some ruined great lady she thought i should have been careful not to forget the consideration due to age or misfortune there is another proof of what i was just saying to the baroness our minds are given a false direction and our hearts are withered by being brought up in the prejudices of rank i feel that i have been selfish and discourteous in my treatment of this lady who as i have been told is eminently respectable and in very straitened circumstances how can i have forgotten a bounden duty but here is an opportunity to make up for everything and i will not throw it away for i long to make peace with myself to-day the countess resolutely approached the window and coughed two or three times as if to give notice of her presence and as no one stirred she ventured to tap on the glass julian had gone out but madame thierry was at home greatly surprised she came to the window and when she saw that beautiful lady whom she knew perfectly well by sight although she had never spoken to her she threw it wide open excuse me madame said the countess for choosing this method of making your acquaintance but i am not quite out of mourning yet as you see i do not pay visits and i have something to say to you with your permission can you listen to me for a moment where you are assuredly madame and with very great pleasure replied madame thierry in a dignified and amiable tone and with the perfect ease of manner in which there was nothing of the petty bourgeois dazzled by an overture from one of more exalted station the countess was deeply impressed by the distinction of her face by the excellent taste of her simple dress by her sweet voice and by an indefinable savour of refinement exhaled by her whole person be seated i beg she said spying the armchair in the window recess i do not wish to keep you standing but you madame rejoined the widow with a smile ah i have an idea with your permission i will pass you a chair no do not take that trouble yes indeed here is a very light straw chair and between us between them they succeeded in passing the chair over the window-sill one holding it the other receiving it and smiling both at that unceremonious performance which created a sort of intimacy between them at once this is what i had to say said madame de strel when she was seated hitherto you have been living in a house belonging to the marquis de strel my father-in-law but to-day you are living in my house monsieur le marquis having presented it to me i do not know as yet the terms of your lease but there is one which i presume you will consent to modify be kind enough to tell me which one you refer to madame la comtesse replied the widow bowing slightly and with a faint cloud upon her face in anticipation of some disagreement 
i refer said the countess to keeping this miserable door always locked and bolted between us it is a perfect eyesore to me if you consent i propose to have it open to-morrow i will give you the keys and i invite you to walk in my garden for exercise or diversion as much as you please it will be a great pleasure to me to meet you here i live very much alone and if you are willing to stop and rest sometimes in the house i live in i will do my utmost to prevent your being dissatisfied with me as a neighbor madame thierry's face had lighted up the countess's offer gave her genuine pleasure to have a beautiful garden under one's eyes every hour in the day and not be able to set foot inside it is a sort of torture moreover she was deeply touched by the graceful way in which the invitation was given and she realized at once that she had to do with a lovable and noble-hearted woman she thanked her with charming warmth abating nothing of the gentle dignity of her manners and they at once began to converse as if they had always known each other the instinctive sympathy between them was so quick and so entirely reciprocal you live alone you say said madame thierry surely it is a merely temporary condition of affairs and not a matter of inclination it is partly because i shrink from society and distrust myself do you like society madame i do not hate it said the widow i left it because i was in love i forgot it then returned to it without an effort and without losing my head then i left it again from necessity and without regret all this seems a little obscure to you does it not i know that monsieur thierry was in very comfortable circumstances and had most desirable social connections that he went into society and received at his own house the very elite of persons of intellect but you do not know of our earlier life it made some noise at the time but that was a long while ago and you are so young stay said the countess i beg your pardon for my forgetfulness now i remember you are of noble birth yes i was mademoiselle de Meux of a good old noble family of lorraine indeed i might have been quite wealthy if i had consented to marry at the bidding of my guardians i love monsieur thierry who was then only a journeyman painter without a name and without means i left everything broke with everything threw everything to the winds to become his wife little by little he became famous and just as he began to earn money rapidly i received my inheritance so we were repaid for our constancy not only by thirty years of happiness but by more or less prosperity in our old age and now oh now it's a different story i am happy still but in another way i have lost my dearly loved companion and with him all material comfort but i still have such great consolation she was about to mention her son when a servant in livery came and informed the countess that her old friend madame desmorges was waiting for her in the house to-morrow said julie as she rose to go we will talk at our ease in your house or mine i am anxious to know all about you for i feel that i love you dearly forgive me for saying it so bluntly but it is the truth i must go to receive an elderly lady whom i cannot keep waiting but i will give orders now for the workmen to come here to-morrow and open your prison door madame thierry was enchanted with madame d'estrelle she was a woman of keen and spontaneous sympathies still young in heart and full of enthusiasm because she had lived in the enthusiastic atmosphere that surrounds a beloved artist and she was more or less romantic as a woman must be who has sacrificed everything to love 
In the first flush of excitement, she would have told her son what had happened, but he was not there, and she exerted her ingenuity to arrange for him the same surprise she had enjoyed. Many times, as they were passing from comparative opulence to their present straitened and harassing condition, Julian had taken alarm at the privations with which his mother was threatened. They had a pretty little cottage at Sevres, with a fine garden, where Madame Thierry tended lovingly with her own hands the flowers which her husband and son used as models. They had had to sell everything. Julian's heart ached when he saw the poor old woman confined in Paris, in that pavilion, which they hired at a very modest rate. He hoped at first that they could enjoy the surrounding gardens, but the lease informed him that neither the Marquis d'Estrelle, their landlord, nor the wealthy Monsieur Thierry, their near neighbor and near kinsman, would allow them to walk elsewhere than in the street, which was always filled with workmen and with materials for buildings under construction. He complained bitterly of that condemned door, said Madame Thierry to herself, as she thought of her son. A score of times he has had an idea of going and asking the Countess to remove the prohibition for my benefit, promising on his honor that he himself would never cross the threshold of the pavilion. I have always dissuaded him from taking a step which might have subjected us to humiliation. How glad he will be to see me at liberty! But how shall I arrange matters to give him a little surprise? Suppose I should send him on an errand tomorrow morning, while the workmen are here. End of section 3